Uh, there is a lot in the news lately about the upcoming election. Uh, most people say it's more like a reality show than a presidential election. Some people have already made up their mind for which candidate they will vote. Others have decided which candidate they will not vote for. Uh, there are still a few that have not made up their decision about for whom they will vote. This is an interesting political year. Uh, it almost has ceased for me being a political junkie. Uh, I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, there's lots of issues that are important. Uh, most of us, we either some of us will vote Democrat, others of us will vote Republican. Uh, some of us will probably vote the party that more closely aligns with our political views, whichever party that is. There, there's lots of issues. And we will look at the platforms of the various candidates and we say, I am aligned with this candidate because of these issues. There's lots of issues that are important in this upcoming election. And that's what I want to talk about for the next few months or the next few weeks. I want to talk about the issues that are important, but I want to talk about them from a biblical perspective. You see, I'm not as interested in the Republican view or the Democratic view or the Independent view. I'm interested in God's view. What does God have to say about these issues? As a matter of fact, the, our topic for the next five weeks will be issues of the heart. Because the things that we're going to talk about are things that emanate from the heart and not from those things that are external to us. So we're going to be looking at issues of the heart, and for this morning, we want to say, what does God say about abortion? Now, we are all going to come to this room with different opinions, different understandings about abortion and, and, and what it is and what, what it means. It's a hot topic, uh, especially amongst the, the younger uh, generation. Many of you are probably saying, why do we even have this issue to talk about? Because this is outside of your realm uh, of, of comprehension. Let me give you some stats from the, na from the, from the, national, uh, uh, from the national government. In, in 2015, there were 1,079,997 abortions performed in 2015. This is from the government stats, all right? That equals to 2,959 abortions a day. That comes out to 123 abortions an hour to a little over two a minute. That not, just wrap yourself around that just for a moment. In the span of one minute, there'll be over two abortions performed in the United States. This is just in the United States. This is not taking into account all the others. Now, abortions are done for a variety of reasons, uh, whatever those might be. But can we just be honest that abortions are basically being performed because of our sinful desires? The sexual revolution that, that has, has run rampant through the 60s and the 70s and on, on even in today has caused thousands of pregnant, unwed women to want to give up their child. The fact of the matter is that 90% of all pregnancies, or all, all abortions, are determined unwanted pregnancies. Can we just be honest that abortion is our way to cover up our sexual immorality? That's what it is. It's our way to cover up what we're doing. So let's take a step in time, 
And let's figure out how did we ever get to this point in life. The first thing we want to look at is the case that started it all. In Jan- on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court, not Supreme Court, took a case called Roe versus Wade. And in that case, the Supreme Court decided these were nine unelected men wearing black robes. They made the decision that abortion is an American freedom. It is, it is, is a right of a woman because of, of liberty that she should have an abortion. And liberty includes the right to have an abortion. In that, uh, in that uh, decision, they said this, a state is forbidden to deny any time prior to birth if, in the opinion of one licensed physician, an abortion is necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. Now, I suppose a legitimate case could be made uh, for the life of a mother. I'm not saying I justify it. I'm just saying I, I suppose there are some out there that could justify it. But what about that last phrase, or health of the mother? Uh, what exactly does that, that mean? Uh, let's just be, uh, put it out there. Only 1% of, pregnancy, of abortions are performed for the, for the life of the mother. Only 1%. Or for, one, for the health of the mother, I'm sorry. For the health of the mother. So that means 99% of them are performed for some other reason. Now there's 2 million, according to, to Washington National Statistics, there were 2 million couples waiting to adopt a child, yet we have over a million abortions. Uh, something is out of kelter here. So what does it mean, this phrase, the health of the mother? The Supreme Court went on to say this, the medic, that the medical judgment may be exercised in light of all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, family factors, and the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the patient. Now here it is in practical terms. She can have an abortion if it's going to force her to have a distressful life in the future. If it's going to produce psychological harm, if it's going to tax her, her mental and her physical health of the mother by having, by having to provide child care, or if it will bring distress and embarrassment associated with an unwanted child, she could have an abortion. That's what it means. So, you know, listen, under that same criteria, God would be justified to abort every one of us. Why? Because we distress Him, we tax Him, and we embarrass Him many times in our lives. So He would be justified under those terms. The result is that the Supreme Court says uh, as allows women to have a legal abortion for just about any reason whatsoever, up to the time of the birth, theoretically, they can. Now, they've tried to put limits on that and restrictions, but they've all been struck down, every one of them. Only requirement for an abortion to happen is that the baby is alive in the womb, there's a physician willing to do the killing, and the mother wants the baby killed. If you get those three, it is legal in the United States of America to kill an unborn child. As of, this, this is a little bit behind because I think I wrote this down on Wednesday, but as of, as of that date, uh, January 22, 1973, there have been 59,414,157 babies have been aborted in the United States alone. In the United States. That's not worldwide. 
That's just here in our country. That's the case that started it all. Now, there's a con- the confusion that surrounds it. Let's talk about the confusion. Uh, there's a lot of confusion uh, about this, 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 this term, uh, this idea of abortion. And basically, it all stems from one question. When does life begin? As a matter of fact, I, I was reading the, the Supreme Court case, and it said that the justices actually said in, in, their, in their case, he said, if, if, uh, if uh, doctors and philosophers and theologians cannot get together on when life begins, we as judges are not going to determine that for them. So the question is, when does life begin? Is it simply a voluntary miscarriage, as, as the feminists would like us to believe? Or is it just a, a post-conceptive uh, fertility control? Or is it murder, like pro-lifers believe that it is? Well, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. It is amazing that, that when we start talking about issues of life, we always go back to the beginning. Uh, we, we go back to the very beginning when God created everything that exists. You see, basically, when, when, you, when you get down to it, every sin we have to do goes back to the beginning, that we think we know better than God. Uh, we, we think that we have a right to make our own decisions. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Notice what the writer Moses says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Skip down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Three times in three verses, we see the image of God, the image of God, the image of God. Usually when you see something three times in passage, that means this is important. God is wanting us to grasp this concept. So here's the question uh, that, that we submit to you. What does it mean that man is created in the image of God? What does that mean? Let me ask you another question. Does God have a body? No. God does not have a body. The Bible says that God is spirit. John chapter 4 verse 24 says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, so this reference that we're created in the image of God is, is, is not to our bodies, it's to our personality, it's to our soul, it's to our spirit that, that God is talking about. That's what's in the image of God. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. When did man become a living being? When God breathed the life into him is what it says here. He formed him, and then God breathed into him. Did you know that the exact elements that, that are, that, uh, of the soil is found in our body? That's true. The exact elements that are found in the soil and the dust of the earth is found in our body as well. That's why when the body decays, after many years, it becomes dust again. God even promised that this would, this would happen. He said it. Look at Genesis chapter 3, 
verse 19 in that passage. I think I have it on the board for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We saw this same truth a couple of weeks ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, when Solomon said, And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Throughout the Scriptures, uh, we see this idea that we're going to return to dust. Uh, there have been some that say, no, that's only referring to Adam. Well, then let's throw out all the other Scriptures of the Bible that say we're going to return to dust. I, that's not what, what it, it's saying anywhere in the passage. So throughout the Scripture, we are seeing that we are going to return to dust. So if the phrase, image of God, is talking about our personality, it's talking about our soul, and it's talking about our spirit, when do the two meet? When does the, this dust of the earth and the image of God, when do they meet? When does that dust become the image of God? Is it at birth? When the baby is, comes through the birth canal, is that when it happens? Is it when the baby is able to live outside the womb? Is it uh, at nine weeks? Is it when the heart begins to beat? Or is it at conception? Here's the thing. No one is able to successfully answer this question even with all the modern technology we possess. They do not know the answer to that question. God says it too in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5. Again, we looked at this. Isn't it amazing the way God does that? Amen. As you do not know the path of the wind. I, I, let's, talk, let's stop and talk about that. I was watching this week on, on Hurricane Matthew making its way through that, and I was amazed that the, the computer models is going to go this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. Yeah. In other words, they don't know where it's going to go. Well, guess what? God says that as you do not know the path of the wind. Now, we can guess, we can estimate, but we never know for sure. Let's go on. Or how the body is formed in a mother's womb. We don't know. So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Even with all the modern technology that we have, we cannot successfully answer the question, when does that child become alive? When does the image of God become one in that child? The Bible's clear. A real person exists in the mother's womb. In the womb, it's when that, that image of God, our spirit and soul and personality is introduced to a body that is made of dust. That's when the two come together. Now, turn over to Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. This is one of the greatest passages that talks about how God is intimately involved in the process of life. David is writing this psalm. I want you to notice the process that is described in this passage as God forms the life of the child. Look at verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That phrase, inmost being, you might want to underline it, circle it. It's, it's, it's talking about the vital organs that are created, but more than that, when you examine, it also talks about the personality of that individual. So it's talking about everything that's within that child is formed. Notice how else it says, 
you knit me together. Isn't that a great poetic way of describing the way that God put you together? It's the same word. That word knit is the same word used of a woman weaving a garment together. David probably understood this. He'd probably seen many times his own mother, his own parents, his own family weaving garments together in intricate detail. And he recognized, he goes, oh man, that's exactly the way God does me. He weaves me together. And he knows that when, 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 a, when a mom or a grandma is, is that sounds chauvinistic, is, when any person weaves or, or knits, uh, it could be a man, okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the point of the garment. When they knit them together, there's a lot of care, a lot of time, a lot of love that goes into it. And David also knows that every garment is different. None of them are, are exactly alike. They, they are unique. They are special. And when David thinks of that, he breaks into worship. He goes, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He says, when I, when I examine the way you put me together, he's got, I've got to step back. I've got to worship. I've got to worship because I am unique and I am special. We can follow closely. Uh, the, the development of a child in a womb because of 4D imaging, 3D imaging, it's come a long way. I mean, it's come a long way. But, but we are told that basically, now I'm not a woman, I'm only going by what I've read, okay, that, that really a pregnancy is not detected until about the sixth week. That's when they, when they begin to think, I, I could be pregnant. And the child and the, and the parent really does, the mother doesn't really feel the baby move until about the third month. Uh, of, of the pregnancy. But here's the thing. God said it wasn't hidden from me. I saw it. God knows that baby before we are even aware of its existence. Look at verses 15 through 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. See that word in verse 15, my frame. That refers to the skeletal system is what it's talking about. Now, we know scientifically that the skeletal system is in full form by the time the child is six weeks old in the mother's womb. It's fully formed. Now, it will expand and grow bigger, but all the bones are there in place at six weeks. David tells us in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, before that skeleton is formed, God knew us. God knew us. We may not have known it, but God knew it. God knew this child. Notice what else he says. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Before it even reached the form, you saw it. You knew what was going on. God knew. Even though we may not know, God knows. And the Bible says that God is intimately involved in the process of developing that baby. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, some people say, yeah, that was only, he's only talking about Jeremiah there. What are you talking about? He's only talking about Jeremiah. If he knew Jeremiah before he was formed in the womb, he knew you. I love these people that pick and choose Scripture to say what they wanted to say. That's what it says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Guess what? God, before you were formed in the womb, God knew you. Everything about you. So how does God feel about the child in the womb? How does he feel? Turning the Bible to Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. 
Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. Here's what we got. This is Moses get laying out some laws. These come right after the Ten Commandments. These are commandments too, okay? If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. So there's some limitations here. Notice the next passage. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Life for life. Here's what you read this passage. You cannot read this passage and tell me that the baby inside this mother's womb is not a human being. The Bible says that two men get in a fight and in the process they punch the belly of a woman and that baby dies, is aborted prematurely, then that man is to be put to death. Now, that's in the case of an accident. Let's argue from the lesser to the greater. That's in the case of an accident. What about those who intentionally do it? Would not God's word apply to that as well? Now, here's what this does not give you permission to go out and kill abortionists. All right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not our right. But it does tell us in this passage how God views the life in the womb. It's life. And he loves that child in the womb. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 1, verse 41. As I got to looking at this passage and, and as tying it into my sermon, I said, hey, it is so cool when God does this. You know, we are studying the book of Luke on Sunday nights. You know what passage we'll be looking at tonight? This one. Now, look, there is no way I could have planned that. There's no way in, in, this, in this, this sovereignty of, of my own thinking that I would look back and I'd plan my preaching last year and I would know, oh, this is great. I'll preach. I'll do Luke at the exact same time I'm doing this passage. Guys, I am not that good. This is a God thing. I just love the way that, that God brings them all together. Now, you're going to recognize this passage. We read it every year at Christmas time. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 41, and what it says. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Circle this word, baby. The baby. This is the same word used for a newborn child or an unborn child. In other words, God sees no difference. God does not make a distinction between a baby in the womb and a baby recently born. We would like for this to say, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the blob of tissue leaped in her womb. We would like to say, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the fetus leaped in her womb, the embryo leaped in her womb, but it doesn't say that. Look, words matter. It says, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby was six months old at this time. And this baby recognized the presence of the Savior in the womb of Mary, who may have only been two, three, six weeks old in the womb. But the baby recognized the presence of his Savior in the womb and leapt for joy. And Mary broke out and Elizabeth breaks out into song. This is the same word. This is one of the major areas of difference in society. Society says it's a fetus. Society says it's an embryo. 
Society says it's a blob of tissue. You see, if if society can change the terminology of what it is, it makes it much easier to kill. Oh, it's not really a baby. It's just a blob of tissue. Oh, okay. Then I can handle that. Because we're not really killing a baby. We're just removing an inconvenience, a blob from our life. Proverbs 6, verse 17 says, The Lord hates, listen to this, the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. That's what God's Word says. Some want to say, well, but life does not begin at conception. Life begins at breathing. Well, medical doctors tell us that, that babies breathe through the umbilical cord of the mother. Well, what about the cape of rape or, or, or incest? Listen, We're punishing the wrong people. We're punishing the child for the sins of the father. It doesn't work that way. That would be like, let's see if I can argue with absurdity. Uh, Somebody breaks into your house and and your child leaves the door unlocked. They break into the house and steal you blind. You go to get justice. We're just going to kill your child for leaving the door open. What? That's the stupidest thing in the world. Well, why in the world would we kill the child who's innocent? innocent. We wouldn't do that. Others will say, what about the health of the child? What if there's serious health issues with the baby? I'm reminded of a story I read years ago about a a, a professor at the UCLA Medical School, and he asked this question to his students. He says, a mother and father come to you. The father has syphilis. The mother has TB. They've already had four children. One child is blind. The second child died in birth. The third, third child is death, and the fourth child has TB. She's pregnant with her fifth child. They're willing to have an abortion. If you decide they should, what would you do? Almost every one of these medical students said they would allow abortion. And he said, congratulations, you just aborted Beethoven because such was the circumstances of his birth. You just aborted him. Somebody will argue, well, wait a minute. A woman has, has the right to do whatever she pleases with her body. Yeah, she does. She does. But I'm not talking about her body. I'm talking about the body of the baby. Listen, a woman's right to her body stops when she becomes pregnant. I know that's hard. And listen, I love women. I married one, all right? Three of my children are females. All my pets are females. If I had a fish, it'd probably be a female. I love females. Praise God for them. Amen? Amen. We love them. This is not a male-female issue. This is a biblical issue. This is what does God say. It's time that we remove what we think out of the equation and say, what does God say? Listen, a woman's freedom of choice does not give her the freedom to kill another human being. doesn't give her the right. So we've looked at the case that started it. We've looked at the confusion that surrounds us. Let's talk about the course to stop it. As we think about the course to stop it, let's talk about a practical course of action. Become informed. Understand the issues out there so that you can have rational understanding. It's amazing how many people do not understand Uh, They do not grasp the seriousness of this. 
Listen, uninformed people are uninvolved people. But once you become informed, guess what? Then you will become involved. There's a a political course of action, but there's also a, a practical course of action, but there's also a political course of action. As followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in the Word of God, we are to work toward and pray toward a constitutional amendment that will reverse Roe versus Wade. We got to get it out of the hands of the Supreme Court and put it back in the hands of the people and let them make that decision. Listen, if you are not registered to vote, shame on you. Shame on you. You need to get registered to vote. There's no excuse for followers of Jesus Christ not to be registered to vote. Listen, God would not have created a government and intended his people to stay out of it. It wouldn't have happened. We cannot turn over the, the, our freedom to vote to a bunch of people that do not represent our views and our values. We can't do it. So we have a responsibility to vote. So if you're not registered to vote, get out there and register to vote. If you are registered to vote, vote. Vote. That's your responsibility as an individual. So there's a, there's a practical course of action. There's a political course of action. But there's also a personal course of action. Legislative, legislative measures alone will not end abortion. Laws without a society willing to enforce them, let alone support them, are empty promises. And they can't do anything. So we can't lobby. We can't work solely focus on passing legislation. But we also have to work to change the hearts and minds of those choosing abortion in the first place both within the church and outside the church. Yes, you heard me right. There's people in our churches that support abortion. Support it. We have to attack the problem at its source. So in your sphere of influence, wherever that might be, in your home, in your house, around your friends, in your neighbors, in your in-laws, in your outlaws, begin speaking without apology. Clearly what God's Word says. Isaiah 58 verse 1 says this, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Proverbs 31 8 states this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Explain to your children a biblical view of sex. Talk to your grandchildren about a biblical view of marriage, of the sexual intimacy that exists. Talk to them. Pray for them. If you don't tell them what God thinks about it, they may never know. Don't assume that your Sunday school teacher is doing it. Uh, Don't assume, well, definitely don't assume the school is doing it. Uh, Listen, if you're not doing it, they're going to find out somewhere. I'd rather them hear it from you or guess what? I'd rather them hear from me. Uh, we preached on this several months ago. Marriage matters. You, know, you, can, you can get those sermons online. It's a biblical view of marriage and sex within the confines of the marital intimacy, of the marriage relationship. Take the initiative. This is an important issue of the heart. Listen, it's not a political issue. This is an issue of the heart. 
And one of the reasons we are in this situation that we're in today is because we as followers of Christ have failed to be salt and we have failed to be light in the world where God has placed us. We have failed. Now, before you leave, let me talk to those who have been affected by abortion. may not be that many in this room, but there could be. I want you to know that you cannot undo something that has been done. You can't unscramble eggs. You can't go back and wish it away. You can't go back and try to change what you did. My sermon this morning is not intended to lay some guilt trip on you. I want you to know that God loves you. And God stands ready to forgive you of your sins, of your disobedience. All you have to do is turn to Him. Some of you, are, you have the memory of an abortion in your heart. I want you to know that God can still take this and He can turn it into something good if you will give it to Him and you will turn it over to Him and you will confess. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says this, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So confess your sins. Confess them to God and you will find a God who is ready to offer forgiveness, offer grace, and offer mercy. And once you've experienced His forgiveness, once you've experienced His grace, once you've experienced His mercy, you can work to help other mothers not to make the same mistake that you made. You can work with ministries to pregnant women. CareNet Pregnancy Centers is a, is a great place to work. We have one here in, in Waco. It's a great place to work. As I got the reading about them, they said the last eight years in the United States, they have saved more than 531,000 unborn lives. At the rate of $500 in abortion, guess what? That is $265 million of lost revenue to the abortion centers. You want to shut down abortion? Hit them where it hurts. Hit them where it hurts. But see, not only do, do, do we have to advocate strongly against abortion, but this is one of the problems when we as Baptists have, and ha have. When we as evangelical Christians, everybody knows what we're against. We're against abortion. Okay, what are we for? We're for adoption. If, we're going to, if that mom is going to have that child, then we've got to be there to help her with that child. Because, oh, thank God you didn't have an abortion while the child goes hungry and, and unloved. We've got to work to do that. We need to work to make adoption easier. Look, if they can get an abortion for $500, why can't we adopt for $500? Why does it cost ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to adopt a child when they can abort them for $500? We've got to work to make sure that adoptive services are easier for people to get. We still want the process, but, but we want to make sure it's easier because we want those children to know they are loved. And they are careful. Oh, God forbid, God forbid that, the, that, that a child that's aborted the first time they ever know they love is when they step into the arms of Jesus. Cry out to the orphans, the, mother, the homeless, the helpless, the hopeless. Oh, we love you, and we love you so much that we're willing to go to bat for you. So where do you stand today? See, I'm one of these guys, I don't believe this is a political issue. This is a moral issue. It's a social issue. And God's Word is clear of what we need to do 
We need to stand up on that. You listen, you examine the candidates. I will not tell you how to vote. Now, I will outside the pulpit, but I won't tell you here, all right? No, I won't even tell you that. I said, you vote your conscience, but you better, when you go into that voting booth, you better know where that candidate stands on this issue. You better know. Because we will be held responsible for the way we cast our vote, for the works that we do. What is the work you're going to do in defense of the helpless, the hapless, the hopeless, the unborn? What are you going to do? So what's God's invitation for you this morning? God's invitation to you is to get involved. Pray, support, get informed. Find the, the, find the CareNet Pregnancy Center. Say, what can we do to help? We have individuals in our church that help. My wife is involved in a ministry that, that helps these, these moms who, who are pregnant, these unwed, these low-income moms understand and said, this is, this is a great option, having your baby. Now we want to help you know how to raise that child. Find a, find a way that you can be involved. Maybe God is touching your heart. Maybe you need prayer. You need counsel. You just need somebody to pray with you. We want to offer that to you. Whatever decision God is leading you to make, we're going to invite you to come in a moment. Would you stand with me?